feminism is predicated on the idea that more is always better. More freedom, more technology, more autonomy. But my guest on today's program says that ethos is dissolving the bonds between men and women, between women and children, and between women and their bodies. And she argues it's time to rethink feminism. Mary Harrington is a columnist and contributing editor at Unheard and a fellow substacker. Her new book is Feminism Against Progress. Mary Harrington is my guest today on Lean Out. Mary, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to have you on. I've been following your work for some time. I thought the book was absolutely fascinating, and I'm excited to get to speak with you today. Let's start by setting terms here. Um, People will be listening from all over the world, and there's different definitions of feminism and progress. So how do you define feminism here, and how do you define progress? Well, I'll start with progress, because that's probably simpler. When I when I talk about progress, I mean at the most at the simplest level, a belief that we're going from things being less less good to things being more good, um, and that this is possible and can go on happening forever, or I don't know until we reach some undefined state of I don't know total felicity. It's pretty it's pretty clear once you start looking at it that this has its origins in Christian theology, but in in the in the sense in the way we encounter it today, it's generally it's generally sort of wiggled its way free of that. And people are not thinking about, you know, the attainment of heaven on earth in any sort of literal sense. They just want things to get better and to go on getting better. And, you know, if something's regressive, that means it's moving backwards, which is by definition bad. I haven't I haven't set out to in the book to argue to argue that the, the case the, in detail, the philosophical case for why I don't believe in this idea. But, but I've simply taken it as a starting premise for my book that this is a belief, not a fact, you know, that I don't believe in progress. This is a, this is in a sense, a sort of fundamental metaphysical belief, which is so widespread now, it's pretty much just in the water. You Mm. know, people absorb it, people internalize it just in the course of everyday conversation. It crops up in kids' movies, it crops up in, you know, it's just everywhere. Um, And it's, it's a basic, it's a, it's a basic foundational premise of my book that this is a belief and not a fact. Um, Feminism is... Well, that's a slightly a slightly longer answer because the way in which I've uh, uh, well the first third of the book sets out to give you my definition of feminism, which is a slightly slightly at an angle, I suppose, to the way it's normally understood. I suppose I'll, I'll set it against um, the the these sort of mainstream, if you like, the the magazine understanding of feminism from which I dissent, um, which is broadly speaking. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll borrow the, the the joke from the Onion. You know, women are empowered by anything women choose to do. <laughs> um, that's 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 the crudest, I suppose. Sort of, uh, but but possibly also the most accurate expression of magazine feminism: the idea that more freedom is by definition always better, and that progress is a trajectory towards more freedom on on, on any metric you care you care to name, and that where women are concerned, this. This particularly relates to our bodies, but it also relates to the relate the kind of relationships we have, the kind of work that we do, and 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 the kind of the kind of opportunities we have, and etc. and so on. That's sort of broadly the magazine feminism understanding of what we're talking about. I, I've taken a slightly slightly more historical approach to to this because I because really I found myself I found myself questioning magazine feminism when I had a child. 
and came to think that this idea that more freedom is by definition always better is just not tenable when you have a baby to look after. It makes it just doesn't make sense. Because to me, having my daughter in my life was obviously better than not having her. I mean, just self-evidently. You know, I love her, I, I loved her to bits. And she's she's the one of the she's the most amazing thing that's that's served to the most transformative um event of, of my adult life, really. And and so so it made no sense to me in that context to think that all more freedom is by definition always better because what came what came with that relationship as as with getting married was not more freedom but less freedom at least on some metrics you know I don't I didn't have the freedom to just have a lie in you know if I'm if I'm sick I've still got to take care of her um, you know there there are, there are countless ways you know you can't you can't very well just lie there and not get up to your screaming baby in the middle of the night because you don't want to mm-hmm. you know in many in many very important senses you're less free when you have a baby. Um, so and so, so I thought, how is it? Why is it that um, we have we have this blind spot where mothers are concerned? And what and I and I when I started to look around, I realised that this blind spot where care is concerned, and where really the obligation to dependence is concerned, goes considerably further and spreads considerably wider than just just mothers and little babies. Even though it's a very obvious blind spot in that in that context. And I mean, I've been a stay-at-home mum, and I think every stay-at-home mum I've ever spoken to about this will recognise the moment when you tell people at a party that you tell someone that you're a stay-at-home mum, and they ask you, so what do you do at a dinner or party? And you tell them, oh, I'm a mum, and they're already looking over your shoulder to look to, for someone else more interesting to talk to, because they just, as they assume, because you're mum, and that's your primary occupation, that you're probably a bit dumb, you're probably a bit unambitious, you're probably, you know, in, in some, in some, in some respects, you're a, you're a sort of secondary, second, you're a, you're a kind of second class human, uh, just, you know, what, what could, what could this person possibly have to say? Or what, could I, you know, what, what could I possibly find to talk about with this person? This is, this is just a, a routine occurrence for stay at home mums. And, you know, being, have, having had that experience, and you know, having you know, mapped that to my own I mean, it's not like it's not like my brain stopped working when I when I stopped when I stopped working for money. Um, you know, it's not like it, it's not like somebody came and took off took took away from me my first class degree certificate from Oxford University. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's it's not like I suddenly became this kind of this this fan, this fantasy second class being. So I thought, well, what's actually going on here? You know, what's what what's what's this about? And you know, if if more freedom isn't necessarily always better, and if um activities in public life are treated as as just self-evidently so much more superior and so much more laudable and admirable and valuable than activities in the private private domestic sphere and if somehow there's been this contest within feminism because it was you know as as I sort of read around I began to realize that these arguments had had been happening in feminism since forever you know what is the place of mothers you know to what to what extent do we you know what how how do we make space for care and i mean this is a major theme within feminism and i thought why why does care always lose mm. why why is this just a structural feature and i realized that it's a much bigger story uh, than than just women it's just very pronounced where women are concerned and i began to realize that it's really the it's it's the story of liberal modernity yeah and so and so what i've what i've ended up tracing through part 1 of feminism against progress is my understanding of the women's movement as being a response to that story of liberal modernity and really women's specific sex response to the way to the to the changes that liberal modernity brought to family life you know all of which were justified and legitimate and really you know the the, the feminist campaign for more freedom 
within within industrial civilization was was just in the context of the legacy cultural and legal um, environment that that women were, women found themselves in under really very new material circumstances that had been inherited from the Middle Ages, you know, where where life was organised really quite differently. And also also the, the, those women who set out to make the case for care and dependency and mutual obligation and the private domestic sphere were also justified in the case that they were making against a, a much larger cultural and economic order, which was in, increasingly valorised the independent, atomized, economically active sovereign subject um, and really didn't had a had a had a tremendous blind spot for pretty much everything else, and I mean yeah as I've said in the book Rousseau said the quiet part out loud all the way back in the nineteenth century didn't he when he said oh you know you know the he he set out his his vision for you know how to form the perfect liberal subject and then he pretty much dismissed the possibility that women could have access to that from the word go and he thought you know men men should be educated to be these ideal autonomous liberal subjects and pursue you know pursue their passions and generally generally be marvellous, free, independent beings. And women should be raised to be charming, compliant, support humans and raise their babies and just be generally generally agreeable and nice and fertile. And bluntly, you know, he's he's not wrong. And I sat there, you know, and there, you know, pushing the pushing my buggy around the empty daytime streets of small town Britain. I was thinking, okay, so uh, there's, there's two ways. There's two ways you can think about this. You can either think, well, okay, fine, I'm just going to have to be a charming, compliant, support human, and that in fact this is a women problem, or I could think, no, no, sod this. This is a liberalism problem. You know, <laughs> I, I, I refuse to be shunted into this stupid box. Um, I refuse to, you know, and if that means I have to reject the entire liberal paradigm, just out of hand. And and have a have a crack at rethinking what it means to be people in relation, you know, what it means for men and women to be people in relation to one another, and, and while honouring our distinctive dimorphic sexed natures, then then I'm I'm, I'm going to make a case for doing that. You know, <laughs> it's you know perhaps it's perhaps it's a little bit ambitious, um, but but on the other hand, I think I, I would I would contend that it's no more ambitious than what liberal feminism has set out to try and do in response to the sort of Rousseauian paradigm, which is to abolish biological sex. Which is really the other direction you can go in when you have this irreducible conflict between the liberal paradigm, the atomized economic sovereign, the atomized sovereign subject, and the irreducible physiological obligations that come with motherhood. You can either solve it by trying to abolish mothers, or you can solve it by trying to abolish liberalism. And, <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot, there's a lot more. I, there's a lot more I, that I think is worth preserving about motherhood than I think is worth preserving about liberalism. So, so really, that's the case that I set out to make in the book. Mm. Yeah, raise it's, it to the ground and salt the ashes. <laughs> it's interesting that, that that the baby was was the turning point for you. Not having a baby was a turning point for me. You know, huh. turning turning forty and uh, having this sort of limitless freedom, but not having the interdependence that you talk about in mm. the book and and the care that we all need as humans and and feeling my life lacking in those ways in in pretty profound ways. And having to work my way back from that. Um, in the book, you you describe a sort of transition period from mm -hmm. uh, the crash of 2008 mm -hmm. um, and this transformation of living a very kind of avant-garde, countercultural life to being a, this married and middle-class stay-at-home mother. And you don't say much about that transition. What can you tell us about what that time oh. in your life was like? <laughs> yeah, I think I sort of skated over that because I could have written a whole other book about that. Um, I probably I probably will at some point because there's or at least try and try and say a bit more in a slightly more structured way about what what I went through at that point because really what what happened there was I suppose a kind of recovery from postmodernism um in the sense that the the postmodern turn hit me really hard when I encountered critical theory at university 
it sent me into a sort of low key psychotic state that took um, a number of years to to be manageable in any in any sense at all. And you know, if you and if if as I tend to for my sins, you take ideas seriously. Um, it has wide, far reaching implications for how we should live our lives. You know, it it makes it it makes it more or less impossible to commit in any permanent sense to ever, to anything. You know, in in that respect, the the, the postmodern worldview is about as neoliberal as it gets. And there's something, there's a sort of extraordinary horseshoe moment. You know, it's a, you know, generally, generally speaking, people who are, who are fully signed up to the postmodern grievance studies project tend to think of themselves as, as in opposition to the whole sort of the, the edifice of, of capitalism and technology and so on. But but in, in practice, actually, from an ideological point of view, the two the two go together like 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 cheese and apple. They really do. Um, because you know nothing, nothing could be more liquefying than believing that the, the it's not possible to have a permanent relationship, and all you can have is sort of loose, const, loose shifting constellations of identities or relationships, or even really forms of embodiment. You know, which is which is what the, the postmodern outlook leaves you with. And if you try and live that on a day to day basis, it just quickly becomes very alienated and very alienating. Um, and it, it genuinely does leave you feeling as though there's nothing there's nothing in human society or life or culture other than power, which is just a very dark place to inhabit. And in as much as I in as much as I found a way out of that, um, it was via, funnily enough, I'm sure there are other routes, but for me it was retraining as a psychotherapist. Um, I don't practice as a psychotherapist now, but what what that compelled me to do was to work my way through a body of theory which had engaged with the postmodern turn, but from not from an academic perspective, from a perspective where just by virtue of what the psychotherapists do for a living, they couldn't you could you can't dismiss the idea of an authentic encounter with the other. I mean, this all sounds very abstract. Um, but I mean if you think about you know, what's what what I found so alienating about the the sort of Judith Butlerite approach to living was that it somehow never seemed it never seemed plausible that you were ever really because language, because language is always just defined by other language, it it, it begins to feel as though you're you, you're you're only ever really talking past each other, and you're only ever really trying to act upon one another. And there's this there's just this sort of Nietzschean um, war of all of there's this sort of war of all against all going on just at the at the semiotic level, which is it feels as though there's no space in human relationships for anything except combat, and there's no there's no possibility of reconciliation or encounter or God forbid solidarity or trust. Which is a it's a pretty bleak place to be. Um, you know, I look at I look at some of the sort of unhinged campus activists, and I think, man, if I you know, I recognise that I've been that soldier, and it's pretty dark. Yeah, you know, I'm not surprised that so many of them are as dysregulated as they are, because it's just a it's a deeply it's an incredibly bleak way of relating to the world. It's horrible. And in as in as much as I find found my way out of that via training as a therapist, it's because if you're a therapist and you assume that people are only ever talking past one another, what are you even doing there? Like you can't you can't seriously do that for a living. So you have to start from the premise that some kind of an authentic encounter is possible. And the way therapy, the way the way contemporary therapists have contemporary um, theory around uh, that has embraced the postmodern turn has 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 squared that circle, is by by a very a, a thoughtful and intentive engagement with the body, in a sense. And I mean, I could I could drone on about that for a friend half an hour more than we have but just i mean at a at an experiential level what i learned from going through that training brought me brought me literally back down to earth and and re-restored my trust in the possibility that we can actually talk to one another and that there might be other ways that we other directions we could go with the postmodern turn other than into nihilism and mutual mutually assured destruction
Um, and I, 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 yeah, it was worth all the money that I spent on a training that I that I haven't actually taken up as a practitioner for any length of time. Just just to be just to leave with that insight, it's the most incredible gift. And I guess yeah, after that, after that, some years of mumming, and then I fell back into writing pretty much by accident. <laughs> now here I am. <laughs> well, in the book, you talk about how relationships have been liquidated to each other as men and women, to our babies and to our bodies. And so I want to start with with men and women, this dissolution, this deterioration of relations between men and women. It's something I think about a lot. And you explore how economic and technological changes have freed wives from financial dependence and sex from the risk of pregnancy, and that the norms governing how men and women interact were dissolved and the market moved into the place that was cleared. Now we have this truly bizarre online dating culture that commodifies everyone. Walk me through your analysis of what's happening with dating right now. Well, I should, with a couple of caveats, um, I've been on the shelf for the best part of 15 years and happily so. Um, so I've I, I'm I'm not really at the sharp end of what's going on here, um, although I I speak to I speak to younger friends who are and who who despair at what it's at what it's like on the on the front lines of trying to find trying to find love as as things stand. Um, so so where I've where I've started from here. God, do we have time to go all the way back to the enclosure of the commons? So, so my <laughs> my working hypothesis is that once you one of one of the things which is at work in the in the trajectory of modernity is is a dynamic whereby something that was previously governed by social codes um, becomes privatized, enclosed, as it were. And I've taken the enclosure of the commons, the the commonly, the, or re, which was really the end of feudalism in in Britain, um, as a as a paradigmatic example, which can be applied to any number of other arenas since. Drawing on the the analysis of Karl Polanyi, the political economist who was writing about this about a hundred years ago. Who, who who uses this to make the case that what we think of as the eternal market society, you know, this this free market that's an homo economicus, this fictional character, who apparently is just an eternal feature of of human human history and human society, is in fact a pretty recent invention. And Polanyi's, I think it's 1946, his book The Great Transformation, is a meticulous work of political economy that shows how homo economicus came to exist in the first place. And one of the ways that homo economicus came to exist was in being displaced from subsistence life in in that was a subsistence life that was very much governed by social codes rather than by straight by liquid economic transactions. So you didn't sell your labor for a wage. Most people had a lived by a much in under much more complex arrangements where they owed they owed kinds of work or they owed tithes or work or other other goods you know whether whether tangible or time based to 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 other people around them in their communities in exchange for in in exchange for the rights that they held whether to live or to farm a certain acreage or um or whatever and and this was the, this was an immensely complex set of arrangements that you know from all the way from the top of from the top of society down to down to the the absolute the, the lowest the indentured peasants and you know there was plenty wrong with that system and then there was plenty of suffering that went on but it, but the the key point is that it was largely governed by social codes and what happened as the commons were enclosed um was that a, a great deal of the land that on which that happened was privatized and a great deal and, and a lot of the people who had previously existed on that land were stripped of their of their obligations and also their rights um and 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 were displaced to really to become the industrial proletariat 
And my my argument is that um, if you take this as a paradigmatic example of, you know, and really Polanyi positions this as the sort of the the, the entry point into modernity, at least in in Britain. Um, and if you take that as a paradigmatic example of what's going on in modernity, you can see from the Commons that there were plenty of upsides. You know, it, it triggered the the first green boom in agriculture, you know, and arguably, you know, all of those indentured serfs were considerably freer than they had been before. You know, they could go wherever they wanted to; they could sell them and sell there. They could they could sell their labour for a wage. You know, if they if they could rise through society, then then good luck to them. So there was there was a great deal of freedom that came with it, but the rules there was also a great deal was also lost. In I mean, and you know, a huge number of those peasants fought sometimes with weapons to protect their what what we might think from think of from the from the modern age as as servitude as their 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 constraint. So. And and when where I've if if this seems like a very roundabout way of getting to dating, my point is that if I've I've applied in feminism against progress, I've argued that the point at which modernity turned from enclosing and commodifying the natural world to enclosing and commodifying the human body and the human soul was at the beginning of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, which was in effect the enclosure of the female body as a commons, um, the privatization of female bodies from from being a kind of a commons that was that was governed according to human social codes for for very, very substantial, very robust material reasons. I mean, what Women, it, it was you know, everybody else around you really did have skin in the game when it came to who you, who you married or who you had sex with without marrying, because the ch- chances were if you had sex with somebody and, and you weren't married to them, then everybody else around you was going to have to decide what to do with the the fatherless child. And this is this is obviously something that in a in a world without social social security and welfare um, welfare safety nets, that people around you are going to have a view on. So, you know, hence the sexual double standard and the origins of the sexual double standard, which you know, just un- unavoidably under those circumstances falls more heavily on women than on men. And then you know, enter the enter the reliable contraception and all of this just go pretty much disappears overnight. Uh, it becomes thinkable for the first time ever that sex is a purely private matter. It just because that, that was just self-evidently not true prior to reliable contraception, that sex could be considered a purely private matter. It's just, it's absurd to think of it in those terms when there's a meaningful possibility of actually creating a child. But suddenly, you know, enter the pill and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the thousands of years of, of carefully, carefully protected and some, you know, in, in some respects, very asymmetrical. And you, and you, from a modern perspective, you might argue very unfair social codes were just blown out of the water and sex is in a sense privatised. And my argument is that this is this is great from from certain perspectives because this is the dividend of freedom you get. But inevitably, along with the dividend of freedom, you also whatever it is whatever it is that's liberated will also be marketized. The moment you privatize something, you can in theory buy and sell it. And 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 we saw this we saw this with the privatized land. Um, with the enclosure of the commons, the, the moment something's yours, as opposed to being held in common, you can you can dispose of it as you see fit. You can exploit it as you see fit, and this is obviously something which you know the benefits and the downsides of that accrue very asymmetrically. And so you know, where, where in, and under the commons, you know that that dividend of freedom and and money obviously landed very asymmetrically, depending on whether you were a displaced peasant or a landowner. And and by the same token, under the in the 1960s, the the privatization of female bodies obviously land, landed similarly asymmetrically, depending on whether you were a, a wealthy, you know, well-off, well-educated young woman with with brains and ambitions and social capital, um, who could who could fool around for a few years and then probably still find some nice guy to settle down with, or not, or just go and have it all, or whatever. 
um, or whether you were whether you were considerably further down the food chain and you were suddenly in a situation where um, nobody nobody really wanted to marry you and, and have a family with you anymore and and pretty much and pretty much the only opportunities open to you you know under in order to make rent are perhaps to sell your own body I mean this is a very extreme example and obviously there's a great deal of space in the middle but this is the, the, this is this is the the dynamic I, I I wanted to try and set out between between freedom and trade which I see as very much two sides of the same coin and if you fast forward some some distance further. In, in into that dynamic of you know privatization and liberalization and trade and we're now, we're now considerably further into the liberalization of human bodies than we you know, I mean we're, we're 50 years we're 50 years downstream of the pill now and it's more and and I would say that the the liberalization of bodies and and the attendant commodification of bodies has been has been accelerated by the digital revolution and and and, and we've seen added to it with the digital revolution increasingly a liberalization of of our inner lives and a, and also a commodification of our inner lives in a sense in a sense we can we can communicate more of ourselves through the internet but in the process that 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 communication becomes monetized um and in the context of all of this it feels as though there's less and less space for people who gen who really just want to find who want to find somebody else whom they can love and trust there's there's, there's ever an, an ever an ever decreasing portion of desire of physicality of 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 trust or or of anything really at all which is which is not already enclosed and commodified and up for sale um and under those circumstances i'm not really i'm not really surprised to see a dynamic of of really mutual hostility or or just you know i think there are there are several there are several characteristic ways that i see people responding to this this, this pervasive commodification of of bodies and souls in the the dating industry, the industrialization of desire. Um, I mean, on, you you have people who are just opting out altogether. You know, whether whether by because they want to, like the fem cells, or because they they're just left on the shelf, like the incels. Um, you've got people who who respond by by treating treating the the still persistent differences between men and women as, if you like, market opportunities. You know, either ways of either you know. Traits that they can exploit to get what they want, you know, the way the, the way the pickup artists, you know, set out to not to, to weaponize women's normative psychology against them in order to in order to in, in order to manipulate women into providing sexual access, or conversely, the way the female dating strategy um, subculture sets out to to weaponize men's normative mate choice preferences um, in order to in order to manipulate men into into giving up the goods in relationship terms. And both of these are as that they're hostile and combative and cynical in mirroring ways. And you can see that somewhere under somewhere under the carapace, you know, in most cases, I would say still there's a longing for connection. There's a longing to find the other and to experience some kind of authentic connection. But so, but it's 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 so it's so far down under layers of varnish and cynicism and money and 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 mutual hostility that it's it's very it's very difficult in some cases to see how people are going to retrieve really what is what 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 my sense is that most people are still craving for which is love indeed and i do want to i want to get to the reactionary feminism program and to rewilding sex in particular Mm -hmm. but before we do that just one more uh 
thread to tease here. And there's just so much in this book, we could probably talk for hours. But but the first thing that I wanted to get to is the relationship between the mother and the child. And you make an argument in the book, you you posit that there is a link between the safetyism that we're seeing right now with the next generation demanding institutions protect them and the legacy of widespread institutionalized childcare. Walk me through your thinking on that. I thought that was such an interesting point. So this is this this is a subject which I wish somebody uh, which I wish could be researched by a social sciences department because it seems like it, it would be empirically researchable. Um, to see if there's a correlation between demands for safety and protection and experiences of, of third-party childcare and infancy, whether or not, you know, you, age at entering childcare um, and duration of childcare. How it, it seems as though that ought to be empirically measurable, whether or not there's a... Well, well, it, to put it more crudely, whether whether kids who whose mums were at home until they were two or three or four are less woke. Or, or less less aggressively um, ag- aggressively militantly fragilely work, and my hunch is that the answer to that is probably yes, and that ought to be an empirical thing to research. But the nature of social sciences departments is such that that's probably not going to happen. With more more's the pity, um, because it it seems that seems to me like an interesting line to pursue. But really, my my reasoning there. And and just as a as a caveat, I've you know my I've used third party childcare and most thirty. Third party, you know, third party childcare providers. Most of them are infinitely loving and diligent, and work really, really hard to provide a, a lovely, rich environment for the kids. And, and most, most, most kids who go to such settings have a, have a really good time there most of the time. But there are, you know, having been to to some degree a stay at home mum for some of the time, and and having having contrasted the two environments in which to be a kid. And observe both both types of setting. There are, there are differences, inevitably, and one of them one of them concerns risk taking. You know, it, it, it's it's pretty obvious that um, a mum with one kid, or perhaps you know, a couple of a couple of toddlers, you know, can can allow can allow a a, a wobbly three year old to explore the world in a physical way, um, in ways which which you just can't if you're if you're not the mum but a third party childcare provider with with a bunch of kids to watch you know i could i could i can let my daughter walk along a wall um with a with a four foot drop onto tarmac um would would <laughs> would that would that happen on an outing from a nursery yeah hell to the no absolutely you've got to be joking so at the very at the very simplest level there's a there's a level of a very, very in the very simplest way, there's a level of physical risk taking which is possible under the under the watchful or benign benignly neglectful eye of a mother, which is which is just going to feel qualitatively different from the word go than it would um, in in an in an institutional setting with um, you know ev- even with good um, carer to child ratios because the relationships are just different and also because you know any any devoted parent as most devo- most parents are. Um, will will be bothered if their kid has fallen off fallen off a four down off a four foot drop and cracked their head open. You know, mo- most childcare providers don't want to be in the situation of having to explain that. Um, yeah, it's it's just a it, it's just a very different relationship, and the and the incentives are very different. So so chances are, if you spend if if you grow up in childcare, you'll be you'll be discouraged heavily discouraged from taking risks because it's just it's more it's more than your carer's job is worth to let you do that. Um, but also, I think there's something. There's there's something about the structurally there's something about the childcare setting, which encourages 
which which I think is replicated in in the kind of demands that are now being normalized in universities. And what what I mean by that there's the idea that a the, the idea that a home which which is some, something which is oddly often demanded you know this this should be a home to us i think that was a i'm, I'm hearing an angry young person in, in the the evergreen video saying that this should be a home to us um the, why why are you not why, why why are you failing us in that way um and and the, the the idea that a home should be somewhere which is completely free from emotional stress of any kind makes more sense in the constitute in the context of institutionalized childcare where conflicts between children will probably will probably be inter- intervened with more swiftly than they might be in a home setting where the activities the activities in a nursery are going to be always oriented around the children in a way they wouldn't necessarily be at home like if you're if you're a mum and you've got several kids at home you have to spend a certain amount of time just doing stuff and you and you you drag the kids around you know you drag them to the shops or you drag them or they just have to like poke the garden with sticks while you're while you're weeding the flower beds or 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 doing whatever it is that you're doing you know sometimes they just have to entertain themselves and that that's not how nursery works everything is always focused around the child and i'm thinking you know it it kind of tracks doesn't it that you that we now have a generation of young people who expect everything to be focused around them all the time because that's kind of how they've been raised they've been raised not to take physical risks and to have an adult and to be able to appeal to an adult in the con- in the case of interpersonal conflict and and to have everything oriented around their comfort and amusement all of the time. And if that's just if that's just what your what your earliest infant memories are like, then of course you're going. That's what home means. Of course that's what home means. And so of course when if you're confronted with a with a a, a tutor say at university who 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 still holds to the old idea of what a university is, you're just going to be appalled because <laughs> because what is this? <laughs> So again, this, this is not something I can prove, but this is this is this is my hunch that there's a this is there's a correlation mm. between yeah, and, and it's it's really the 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 surprise oughtn't to be that so many young people are now sceptical of democracy, and more and, and supportive of strongman leadership. The surprise should be that anybody anybody really at all um, values values open debate or democratic elections. You know, if given that given that we've we've been raising little children. In effectively, we've been we've been modelling we've been modelling a sort of stifling maternal totalitarianism for two or three generations of kids already. It's a miracle that any of them really have anything to say about democracy at all. Mm. So interesting, and uh, and just to close, I I want to talk a little bit about where we go from here. And um, you will be in Boston later this month um, at Harvard on a panel called "Rethinking Feminism" with Louise Perry and Christine Emba, both of whom have been on this podcast. I do think it's exciting that women are beginning to come together and to really question liberal feminism and to talk about what comes next. And so you advocate here for a reactionary feminism, no more freedom, no more technology, no more atomization. And in the last section of the book, you sketch out what it might look like in the arenas of family life, loved ones, and sex. I want to focus on the last pillar of your program on rewilding sex. What is that? How might it help us to move forward? So this this is the this is my feminist case against the pill. You know, my re- really my contention is that if the if the privatization of women's bodies and everything which has followed downstream of the privatization of women's bodies began with tinkering with our endocrine systems such as to render us fer- infertile by default. Um and that's that's the sort of structural precondition for 
for commodifying women's bodies on the scale that has happened since the sexual revolution, then in fact, the only way to back out of that blind alley is to start with the technology, challenge the technology, which led us into that blind alley, which is the pill. And, and so my argument is that we, we need a feminist led, um, a feminist led rejection of, of hormonal birth control. I'm a little bit more ambivalent, I'll say this, on other methods of birth control, because I think, I mean, humans, you know, our, our lives vary enormously and our circumstances vary, vary enormously. And, you know, women have always sought to manage their fertility. But I, I dissent strongly from the idea that we need ever assent to a program of chemically altering our physiology in order to make us more convenient subjects, either for the workplace or for, for sexually avaricious men who don't really care about us. I, I dissent from the idea that there's anything feminism feminist about that. In the book, though, I've made I've made the case mostly from a from a pro love and pro pleasure point of view, which is to say, um, it's Louise Louise makes the case very persuasively in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, that for the mo- for, for the most part, women just don't enjoy casual sex, um, and so from that perspective, why why would we sign up in in our millions for a technology which makes us ideal subjects for casual sex and makes it. In, in, orders of magnitude more difficult to refuse casual sex because there are no consequences attached to it given that we have we have maybe a 10% chance of orgasm you know in the in the course of those those loveless and degrading encounters well what it seems it seems obvious that one of one of the first moves that you could make in in rejecting that paradigm out of hand would just be not 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 doing that to your body that seems like a good place to start and given that given that saying Given that not neutering yourself and 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 therefore retaining a meaningful chance of conception if you do have sex with somebody, you know that's a that's it's not just a robust reason to say no to to loveless encounters. It's also a very solid motivation to hold out for somebody who you can trust, which is which is another argument. It's it's an argument in favour of love, but also in favour of pleasure because women you know consistently report have enjoying in enjoying sexual relations more in the context of an intimate relationship so again again the the most reliable route to bring both love and to bring love and intimacy and pleasure back into your sexual relationships could, ought to be re, reconnecting as i've put it rewilding sex adding the wildness back in you know reconnecting sex with the, with the consequences of sex and reconnecting sex with with what it's actually bluntly what it's for mm. and the um and <laughs> I mean, I've so elsewhere. Elsewhere, I put it slightly more. I mean, I'm not. I'm not actually being flippant about this. You know, as as I see it, contraceptive sex is like vegan bacon. <laughs> it's kind of like the real thing, and it it tastes mostly the same, but you just know something's a little bit off. And so, and 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 my my final point is that I, I'm willing to bet, actually, quite a lot of money that if if we didn't have if if we didn't have if we if we no longer had normalized uh, contraceptive sex the the entire edifice of increasingly depraved kinks would pretty much disappear overnight um because i i mean if you're eating vegan bacon and it doesn't taste quite right is it any wonder that people are adding hot sauce just to try and feel anything at all wow well Mary, this book has given me so much to think about. I think I'm going to be thinking about it for for weeks to come. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 